Good morning. There are no pressing announcements other than your pastor and his family will be on vacation this week. So that's pressing for us. Otherwise, keep each other in prayer for the holidays and, the, you know, for the travel and the families and mostly for the travel. Uh, Mercy is from the Lord. We have the call to worship. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and sing hymn 500. Father, I know that 
Indeed, God above, we are thankful for the mercies you've given us, and pray, God, these prayers of the song, in accordance to your word, Lord, to have a mind that is built upon and depends upon you, and trusting in your providence, and know that all things are in your hand, God. May we continue, Lord, to have calm hearts in face of the many difficulties in our life, God, so that we can persevere and do what we are called to do by your power and strength. We thank you for this day. We thank you for gathering us and protecting us and for the opportunity to praise your name, to hear your word, and draw nigh unto you and unto the saints as well. We pray, God, for your spirit to be upon us in special measure this day. We pray these things in accordance to the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive our debtors. Not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and glory forever. Amen. Psalm 26 inside the bulletin. Psalm 26. Let us read it responsively. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have hated the assembly of evildoers, and will not sit with the wicked. That I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving, and tell you of all your wondrous works. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. And so he cries out to the Lord for God to have mercy upon him and in the name of, of course, God's goodness, but also in the fact that uh, he has indeed not gone after the evildoers, has not lived that life. He has fought against it and followed the Lord to the best of his ability. And certainly he feels his shortcoming, as he says in verse 11, redeem and be merciful to me, uh, even though he has not even assembled with the evildoers, been with those who make sinister schemes and the like, which is certainly what we're all called to do. He always cries upon the Lord and reminds us that in our sanctification, although relative, we are not perfect, 
It is relatively better than it was 10 years ago for many Christians in their life. They know more of God. Uh, they trust more in Him, and they obey a little more, perhaps in thought, word, and deed, to one degree or another, in various and sundry ways. It is a real sanctification. It is a real growth. And we can cry out to the Lord for protection when uh, people come after us and uh, try to besmirch us and say, you are one of those wicked people, even as we depend upon God's mercy in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. We do gather before you, God, by the blood of our Savior and Lord. Thankful, God, every day for the glorious salvation of our soul, even as we desire the salvation of our body, God, as promised in your word and as demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven, God, we long for the day when you return and the miserable difficulties we deal with, our body, Lord, and this physical world will be dealt with and gone away, God, for the effects of sin, the fall, will be completely eradicated then. For now, God, may we trust in your providence, knowing that all things in our end are appointed in your loving kind, kindness towards us. We pray, God, for your continued, our continued growth in your grace and our desire, God, that your glory and your honor would spread across the face of the earth, that more and more would submit to you and honor your name, God, and lift you up before all men. We pray, God, in particular, certainly in our lives, that we would continue, Lord, as Christians, to glorify your name in word, but also in deed, God, in doing our duties and doing them well as unto you, God, and in love for you and your people. We pray, God, that our worship would give glory and honor to you, Lord, and that we would be satisfied with the simplicity of worship as given in your word, God, and that even the governing of the church and in our families, God, would be done to glorify and honor you, Lord, with an eye upon your majesty, Lord, and not our own pride and not our own glory. Help us, God, to that end to continue as we have in small measure, we feel, to glorify and honor you, Lord, and to show the world the wonders of who you are. We pray, God, for our sins, that we, Lord, as your people, uh, would be aware of our sins, that we, as your people, Lord, <coughs> would repent of our sins, not just on the Lord's Day, but throughout the week, every day. And when it happens, Lord, when we see our sins, God, as you've given us a conscience in your spirit, and we have your word, and we have one another uh, to be reminded, and to be gently reminded, sometimes strongly rebuked as we need, God, of our sins. Perhaps, Lord, not honoring you sufficiently. Perhaps, God, being distracted and uh, indifferent at times when we should not be. Well, whatever the case is, God, we ask and pray uh, that we would, Lord, Fight against our sins and any violations in particular of the first table of the law, which focuses upon you, upon your glory, upon your worship, upon your day. Our Lord and Savior, we ask that we would always put you first. Help us, we pray, God, as we deal with our various difficulties and troubles of vacation, God. Although it's an enjoyable time, we still have to make arrangements. We still have to uh, get things set up, Lord. And we know some of us have to have uh, shots, Lord, to get somewhere or face masks, these inconveniences and difficulties at times, Lord, and try to stay healthy. We ask, God, that you continue to help us to that end, Lord, to accomplish these ends and goals, Lord, through proper means, uh, through sufficient means, Lord. Again, always trusting in you, God, whatever uh, may happen is part of your plan. We ask for safety for those who are traveling by car, by plane, by foot, whatever it may be, Lord. It's uh, much more traffic now uh, during the holiday seasons as people rush to and fro, as we've seen several times in a week now, uh, more than I've seen in a while, God. People running red lights, left and right, uh, and forward, God, and the dangers therein. Help us, Lord, to stay stay alert, to pay attention, and always to pray for you, God, for your, your protection upon your people. 
And for our vacation time that's coming up, God, uh, not just for my family, Lord, but for others who will be doing it this week at home uh, or next week and the following weeks, God, and wherever they may be, Lord, that they would be uh, relaxed and they will have refreshment, God, as you've given us uh, in your providence, Lord, that we are able with our prosperity to do this. We lift up the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We pray for your spirit to be upon her in special measure, Lord, uh, to continue to purify her and keep her steady in accordance to your word. We ask in particular, Lord, for home missions as we see our nation crumble around us, God, that we not give up on our own people, that we would not give up on our own nation, that, Lord, we would do what we can with our monies and our contacts and resources, Lord, to establish and continue to establish as we have for since the beginning of our existence in 36. Uh, to, Lord, support local churches, to do home missions, God, and to uh, bring the gospel to our neighbors, to bring the gospel to our cities and to our states. Help us, we pray, to that end, God, and that our home missions committee would do the right thing and focus therein, Lord, and give them insight and access to uh, people and places, Lord, uh, across this nation, Lord, across the countryside, not just the city, Lord, or wherever uh, we may find your people, Lord. Gather them together, God, that they would have a good fit with them and their evangelist pastor, God, and the establishment of new churches, Lord, and that they would grow in love for one another and the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your word. And we pray, God, for continued wisdom therein and the division of resources as we need, Lord, and distribution therein. We pray not only for the national level, Lord, the General Assembly uh, Committee on this matter, God, but for the Presbyteries, as they also are actively involved in establishing local churches, and they know often more particulars of their region of the country, God, and uh, what people are there and what the demographics are and how to be practical and helpful to that end, Lord, to establish churches. Be with them. Be with the families, God, we pray. Uh, the Missionary pastors, Lord, and those pastors are starting new churches, Lord, that are still chapels not fully on their feet, God. They're still under the session of a mother church, that you would help them, Lord, do the right thing. It's a um, special ability, as it were, a unique ability by your spirit for such men to start churches, to maintain them, and to help them grow in the early important stages of their early birth. Be with them, we pray, God. Help us multiply your truth across this nation. We pray not only for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's effort in this regard, but also our brother and sister churches and the NAPARC Association that we have, God, in which uh, we, uh, as it were, firmly recognize one another and make an effort not to step on each other's toes, Lord. We pray that those churches would also be faithful to your word and they also would uh, grow and they would multiply many gospel churches, churches that are dependent upon your word, that to believe in the law and the gospel, Lord, and to preach both to the people as they need. Help them, we pray, that they also be wise, they also would have the truth, they also have the resources they need to perpetuate the truth of your word and the fullness therein. Help them fight against any temptation to water down the truth, to make concessions to the spirit of the age, not only for them, but also certainly for our denomination as well. We pray the same for other churches across this nation, God, to the extent that they are striving to be faithful to your word, and that you would help them grow to be more faithful in doctrine and in practice, God, and they would establish faithful churches in accordance to your word as well. We ask God for our friends. We pray, Lord, for your spirit to be with us and with them, and that we would, Lord, know when to speak and when not to speak to friends and family and co-workers even, God, people around us, Lord, that it's hard to communicate sometimes, people we've known for a long time, people who suddenly leave us, Lord, and are brought into eternity, as we heard this morning how shocking that can be. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to talk and to know even when to be silent, Lord. Sometimes there's very little we can say, especially it seems to long-standing friends and family members, Lord, who 
shut down their heart before us. And yet nothing is impossible when it comes to changing people's hearts with you there, Lord, so we can continue to pray for them. We ask, Lord, for those who are Christians, Christians who are co-workers and family members and friends, God, um, that we would continue to love them and they love us and that we would talk and learn of your word together, God, if possible, and that if they, Lord, need that their hearts would be open to more truth and to more growth, Lord, and to fullness of the word of God and that we can help them there and give us patience, we pray, Lord, and give us humility as well, we pray to this end, God, that we use the gifts you've given us and the knowledge, which is also a gift of yours, and to help those around us. Be with us this morning, God. Draw us nigh unto you, we pray, and draw us, Lord, in worship of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that we would cast aside all distractions. In your name alone we pray, amen and amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Magnify your name, Lord, God above, and thankful again for the many things you've given us in our lives, God, for the food, for the clothing, for the money on our checking account, which all comes from you, God, and that the giving of the tithes and offerings will come from a ready heart, a joyful heart, and a desirous, Lord, for the expansion of your kingdom. Bless these tithes and offerings, we pray. Amen. While we are standing, let us sing hymn 466, 466.
seated. Let us turn to our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll get through the book of Peter soon. Verse 21, let us listen attentively to the Word of God. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord God above, we're thankful for your Word, we're thankful, God, for Raising up a man like Peter to give letters, Lord, to the church of God that are still applicable to us today. Thank you, Lord, how you work all things in your providence to that end, that what he wrote then is still understandable in many ways today and still applicable. Help us, Lord, to have a better understanding of this text, to be encouraged, God, in the importance of baptism in our life as not only the entrance into God's kingdom, uh, but as an instrument to help, Lord, strengthen our conscience and our salvation. In the name alone we pray. Amen. How shall we understand baptism, especially in the light of this text? To whom should baptism be administered? And what is the significance of baptism years later in the Christian life, especially in a denomination such as ours, and a tradition such as ours, ours, the Protestant tradition of the Reformed faith, in which we believe you're baptized but once? Not every time you have a falling away and come back to the Lord. These are the questions that make a difference in the Christian life and our life. If baptism is a one-time occurrence with no future meaning in the Christian life, it's just what you think about now and then and wrote down in your Bible, then it's something to be forgotten. If baptism is a means of grace to help us grow in Christ, then baptism will not be forgotten, but is used as an instrument, as he says here, an anti-type the flood in the days of Noah and their salvation, that is, their deliverance in the ark as an antitype, that which corresponds to baptism. To what end? Why? What is going on here? It is a means of grace to help us grow in Christ, and it should not be forgotten, but as a motivation and a tool for greater godliness. To understand what baptism is, to whom it should be given, and how to improve upon it, which would take us to this text, and the third point in particular, let us look at what the Bible says about baptism. And so we have a parallel passage to First Peter 3.21, which may be in your study Bible or not, or you can write it down or not. Acts 2.38. Recall this as I went through Acts Acts 2.38, where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost to all the Jews of various sundry national backgrounds, but all have one thing in common, they are Jews. And Peter is preaching to them, and at the end, of course, of his preaching, we read uh, how they heard this and were cut to the heart and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
This is true about our sins and our need of deliverance. What shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So here we read of a thing called baptism, which is something new for the Jews in the sense of what it signifies here in Peter's sermon. We know John the baptizer baptized, but that was under the old covenant. The repentance that that signified was under the old ways of doing things, of being Jewish, of having circumcision, of having the Passover. All that is done away with. And this call is a different call and a new call of baptism for the new covenant, a new dispensation, a new era of the same covenant of grace administered yet differently in this day and age. So the first thing is baptism in the New Testament I would call a kingdom sacrament. A kingdom sacrament, although you probably want more descriptions there. It's new like the Lord's Supper. There was no Lord's Supper as such in the Old Testament. Christ did not break bread with the apostles. He did not give uh, the bread and the wine as symbols for his life and death, and death in particular for his people broken for him and shed for them. It's new, and so is baptism, and that's uh, why I use the word New Testament. It's New Testament kingdom baptism, but it's not completely new as such. It is part of the larger theme of God's kingdom. So it's a New Testament kingdom sacrament. The idea of kingdom is to emphasize that it's the same deliverance, the same salvation. It represents... Although new particulars of redemption, Christ actually came in time and space when he was not there before his birth on earth. It's a similarity, the sameness and substance between the two testaments. It's the one kingdom, although it's a New Testament expression of that kingdom. It's a different sacrament, although the sacrament points to many of the same ideas and truths. People of God in both testaments, as we know, we're eternally called by him, regenerated by the Spirit, justified by faith alone. It is the same. So when I talk about a New Testament kingdom sacrament, the word kingdom is there in that description to highlight the sameness between the Testaments. And we'll see that actually argued and used, assumed in Colossians. Abraham believed and rejoiced in God's day, in Christ's day in particular. Not just the Father, but the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And Moses, as we know, suffered the reproaches of Egypt because of his love of the Messiah to come, of Christ. They were saved, brothers and sisters, like us. Their sanctification was by the Spirit, like us, obeying the same God and the same moral law, although there were some unique applicational differences, like the difference between a child and an adult, and yet both are human. Particular differences, of course, uh, you know, priests, temples, and things like that. God's a little more strict in some regards. But the substance is the same, brothers and sisters. Justification, sanctification, being born again, as Christ told Nicodemus. Don't you know, as a leader in in Israel, about being born again? How can you not know these things? Because he's saying it's already there in the Old Testament. So, The sacrament 
Although New Testament sacrament is still a kingdom sacrament. It still represents the person and work of Christ, although now in a greater fullness of the New Testament era. Pointing to, uh, as we know, ultimately the New Testament era points to heaven in the future when Christ comes. So, we have the same church, the same word, the same prayer, and the same worship. And there is continuity, however, and discontinuity between the Testaments by form. This is obvious, as baptism is different in form than circumcision, and the Lord's Supper is different in form than slaughtering an animal and eating a meal with a priest. I'm not big on lamb, sorry. But the Old Testament people of God, of course, is still the people of God, even though they're in the Old Testament form. The difference is of substance, not of form. The difference is of form, not of substance, excuse me. And the difference in external form is they don't have to be Jews anymore. And they don't quite get it here in Acts 2. That gets fuller uh, explanation through Acts, as you know, the big debate and fight in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. What are we going to do with Gentiles who aren't brought in the old ways and using the old forms? But the internal meaning overlaps significantly. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit's work, for example. Peter quotes Joel for the Pentecost miracle here in Acts 2. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, we're told in the book of Joel. It's a clue to the nature of baptism, why he ties them together. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, we read in Acts 1.5, not many days from now. And that not many days from now is Pentecost, the next chapter. Baptism symbolizes many things, points to, and one of them is the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us salvation, regeneration. So Peter ties this baptism to the Holy Spirit pouring and and the call to be baptized in these verses as we read, Repent and let every one of you be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a picture of the regeneration of being born again. The continuation is also not only in the symbolism of baptism, what it points to, because that was also pointed to in the Old Testament, the oblations and whatnot, to purify themselves. The Spirit of God is who is there to purify them. But also circumcision. I mentioned that before, right? There's differences in outward form. It's a different activity, yes, but it points to, in substance, the same thing. And so in Colossians 2.11 we read, In him you were also circumcised. What is, who is he speaking to? Believers, including Gentile believers. At Colossae, right? Over there in, by Turkey and in Greece. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Well, that's interesting, these Gentiles. What's going on here? By putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh and by the circumcision of Christ... It's the same sentence, buried with him in baptism. So he changes the word from circumcision to baptism, but he's not changed what? The topic and the idea of what's going on in their spiritual life. Buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he goes from Old Testament activity and symbolism to the New Testament activity and symbolism. It says they end up doing the same thing. When I saw that, I was like, I guess I'm Presbyterian. I was never told that. 
although it's right here in black and white. And it's subtle because often you'll see, as you know, that letters are written. They're not theological treaties. It's not like Paul was self-conscious thinking, I'm going to write a systematic theology like Burkhoff or like the Confession, right? And write everything out by topic. No, he's writing a letter like we write a letter and has all the assumptions of like what we have today of freedom and being an American and the things that we desire and we think are important are also there in the Bible, except we know it's by the Holy Spirit. So it's instructive for us, unlike my letters a thousand years from now. So you read here, he just says it in passing, just like oh, it's normal. You know, you're circumcised in your heart. Where'd that come from? Oh, it's an Old Testament doctrine. And you're buried with him in Christ. It just, just slides right into it. So you see, so you see Old Testament language to explain. Old Testament language to explain New Testament doctrine, which ends up actually being Old Testament doctrine. <laughs> just now with greater detail and explanation. Because the Old Testament, as we know, um, has the same doctrines, although not always as clear. And they are paralleled and used and exchanged here in idea. They both mean the same thing. Points to the work of Christ in the heart of men. That is the symbolism and continuity of baptism. And it situates the believer in the body of Christ. Another continuation, another continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament because it's one kingdom of God is the bringing in to the body of Christ. There's no debate, of course, that circumcision was a formal method by which people were brought into the Old Testament Jewish church, the Old Testament church. The New Testament has a ceremonial, ceremonial entrance as well. It is baptism. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one, what? Body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of that one spirit. And we know that body, that language of body, I'm not going to go into this because we know this. Even people who aren't Presbyterian know this, the Baptists and others, they, they teach this, that body is the body of Christ, the church. Baptism brings you into the body of Christ. A different debate, of course, whether you're actually regenerate or not. You may or may not be, but you're certainly brought in like they were of old. And so the continuity between circumcision and baptism is very clear <clears throat> what it points to. Baptism is a symbol of his work. It's similar, to old, it's similar to Old Testament circumcision, and it situates the Christian into the church. Those are the three things of continuity. To whom is the New Testament baptism offered? Who gets it? This is the second point. Here we have continuity of a sort. Uh, I, I think you could argue a more fundamental continuity than discontinuity. Who, right? In the Old Testament, it was males only. Well, see, Pastor, it's different. Today, males and females are brought in by this symbolism, by this action of baptism, Right? Well, think about it. Where's the continuity? Oh, male, male. And now female. So what's happened is there's continuity, and then it expanded, didn't it? And now covers everybody. Baptism is given to both male and female. And so there's actually an explosion of growth and grace in the New Testament era. And this already anticipates what? My argument for why infants ought to be brought in by baptism. The continuity is a continuation it's also seen in families and their children. And Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the 
Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why does he say that? What's his reason for making this declaration to this Jewish audience? For, here's my reason, for the promise is to you and to your children. Why should you be baptized? Because the promise is to you. Baptism is based on the promise. And to your children, because what? The promise is to them. Well, that's interesting. And to all who are far off, which is to say the Gentiles, and using the imagery of the temple where you had the priest in the center, and you had the court of the men, then you had the court of the women and the children, and you had the court of the Gentiles, the furthest out of the circle, as it were, a little more of a rectangle, to represent physically what was done spiritually, that they are outside, they're not part of the church as such. That's done away with. Those who are far off, they too have this promise. As many as the Lord our God will call. And so, Peter assumes it. This continuity. It's like the Old Testament had males, and now it's males and females. And so the Old Testament had children, and today it's children, and more children. Why would it be less? Why would the the change shift away from less to less grace, when it's more grace, when more have been included, uh, girls who can be baptized, and now children as well. Those in the covenant of grace should be baptized. Circumcision replaced by baptism. The syllogism is simple. Under the Old Testament, infants were circumcised as well as adults. Baptism occupies the place of circumcision in the New Testament. We saw that in Colossians 2. and has the same use that circumcision had in the Old Testament. We saw that in Colossians 2 and elsewhere. Therefore, infants are to be baptized as well as adults. That's it. It's a syllogism. It's a logical deduction. Like when you say, all men are mortal. Dan is a man. Therefore, Dan is mortal. You, just, you cannot deny the conclusion must follow from the two premises. But you can argue the two premises. Dan's not a man. <laughs> Dan's, you know, Dan's not human. You know, something like that. And so you can try to argue that circumcision and baptism have no parallel, but obviously they do when I read Colossians 2, for example. So that stands. Here's another one. The second uh, proof of two. Oh, we already went through that. Colossians 2. All humans recognize their solidarity with their children and have with their family and society. Or at least we did up until the last 15 years, I think, in America. We're trying to break that connection. That children have solidarity with their families. They are part of their families. They didn't ask for it. That's just how it is. It's by blood. It's also by covenant. By the marriage vows. Children are born Americans but don't have full privileges until adulthood, but they're still Americans. And children are treated like Americans and are taught to embrace the American uh, way of living. That is the best way of living, (laughs) as we know. The church does not subvert society, but lifts it up. Being a Christian doesn't mean the wives don't submit anymore. People try to push that. Being a Christian doesn't mean the husbands don't lead anymore. People try to push that. Being a Christian doesn't mean you don't serve your master. Listen to your magistrate. We went through that in 1 Peter 2 and 3, didn't we? It actually reinforces those duties and those realities, those moral realities. Because the church doesn't replace it, but perfects it. 
than his grace does. And overcome sin, ultimately. And we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. And so the church does not subvert society, but lifts it up so children are members of the church, is the way to argue that. Well, three. This is what you want to hear about 1 Peter 3.21, right? First Peter 3.21. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. What we have, then, is what you should do with your baptism is improve your baptism, is the language that we have uh, of our tradition. The beginning of it, of course, there's a beginning of the improvement of your baptism and a continuation of it. It begins with public confession of repentance and faith. Public confession of repentance and faith. Now, we know this by action and activity with adults. We're like, well, if you're, gonna, you, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we'll come before the world. Christ says, confess me before men. You get to confess him before men with your baptism. We don't have a problem with that with adults. But unfortunately, a lot of Americans have a problem with that with children. They're like, well, the child can't confess. Sure they can when they get older. They're still called to confess. That hasn't changed. It's that the time slot's different. You must have this confession point publicly to publicly own the covenant that it's me and not my parents and that I will take the responsibility of being a member of the church like an adult. Again, Christianity doesn't overcome adulthood and childhood differences, but rather reinforces them. So it does happen eventually. Tell your Baptist brothers, no, we believe they have to, they have to profess it. It's going to happen. It's still tied to the baptism. Because the baptism brings that obligation upon you to confess Christ. But it comes later for them. So it's a time difference, not a conceptual difference. It's going to happen. We, we'll, we push for that. We believe in that. And so time is not as significant as the act of both baptism and confessing Christ. Adult Abraham owned the covenant before circumcision. Children Isaac and Jacob owned the covenant after circumcision, right? When they came into adulthood, are you going to act upon it? Are you going to rebel against it? That's what we're talking about. And confession, of course, is part of that in the church. Matthew 10, 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I also confess before me before my Father who is in heaven. And if you confess with your mouth, Romans 10, 9, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My daughter memorized that uh, this semester. And so... Children are called to profess Jesus before the world publicly, but it comes later. And so, during that time, the parents improve the baptismal vows upon their children. The children themselves also improve upon it. That is, act out the obligations given to you through the baptism. To be a follower of Jesus. To embrace his covenant. To obey their parents. To do well in school. All that's the obligations upon them, but ultimately the obligation to believe and follow Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the parents are there to help improve that baptism through instruction in the Lord, of the law and gospel, of the word, as best they can. And it's hard in our society, brothers and sisters. It's very hard. I know. And ultimately, as a profession of faith attached 
to baptism. And the profession of faith attached to baptism is an answer of a good conscience towards God. Baptism, yes, mostly emphasizes, the greater part of it is about what God does through the Holy Spirit upon you and, and, and Christ's blood as well, the washing of blood, the symbolism there as well, a lot of overlapping ideas in baptism. But it doesn't deny the fact that you're there and you are also professing or confessing Christ. What shall we do to be saved, be baptized, repent as part of your confession? as it were, and embrace Christ Jesus. And so the answer of a good conscience towards God is not baptism as such. Oh, you got baptized. There you go. You're saved. But the profession attached to baptism, ultimately, that I confess Jesus Christ. Because a good conscience before God is that you are saved, that the blood of Christ has covered your sins. Otherwise, you have a guilty conscience, and it's a bad conscience, and you struggle against that conscience. Baptism symbolizes the Spirit of God washing away your sins and therefore giving you a good conscience. That's the connection that he's talking about here. Not that it saves as such. You notice the contrast he says here in Peter, not to the removal of the filth of the flesh. The baptism, it doesn't wash away dirt. That's not the purpose of it. That's what he's saying here. But the answer of a good conscience towards God, not you're justified. You see, the, his contrast there is not between filthy body and justification, filthy body and being made right with God, which is what some Roman Catholics try to put into the text and other people and whatnot. No, he just says, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. If you are a believer in Jesus and you've not been baptized and made a profession of faith, you should not have a good conscience before God. You need to make that right. Peter makes it very clear. Repent and believe and be baptized. if you've not been baptized already. And then you can go, as it were, before the world in your conscience and say, I have followed Jesus, and my first act is to confess, and as an adult, of course, be baptized. As a child, they already got baptized, and they just have to confess later. And therefore, in that sense, it is that which now saves us. All hinges on what saves me. Here it means a good conscience before God. Is not salvation involved a good conscience, that your conscience is now assuaged, and you realize your guilt has now been taken by Christ Jesus on the cross? And you can say, thank you, Lord, my sins are taken away. That means your conscience feels better. You feel good. That's good. I don't mean in sense of emotions, but the realization that my guilt is taken away is what he means that you have a good conscience now. Not always poking you that you're not good enough. You're wicked and you hate God and you're going to hell. Yeah, but Christ took my sins. I don't need to feel guilty anymore. I don't need to have that guilt upon my conscience. That's what's being said here. That's the sense of being saved because that's part of salvation. Justification is part of salvation. Sanctification is part of salvation. Glorification. We got glorification yet? I'm not there yet, are you? I don't think we're in heaven yet. That's part of salvation too. So let's be clear. The Bible uses the word save like we use many words in different ways. And here it's specifically with respect to the conscience. He says that, but 
an answer of a good conscience. That's what I'm talking about when I use the word save, not what other people wish to read into the text. So it strengthens, another way of saying this, baptism strengthens our weak faith and our weak conscience. That's what the means of grace does. The Lord's Supper does the same thing. It's there to remind you that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Baptism is also there that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life in that sense. And although it only happens once, you can still reflect upon it, that God so worked in your life and his special providence for you, that you were baptized. That's, a, that's, that's significant. That's significant and that's important. And that you had a confession attached to that baptism, whether at the time or later. Because when you do it later as a covenant child, you do it under the auspices of already being baptized, tied to that baptism and the obligations therein. And so, brothers and sisters, in that sense, baptism is improved and strengthened in your life upon your conscience, that you are a Christian. It's kind of like being an American. If you are besieged by a foreign power and entity... Well, it feels that way sometimes, I know, the last few decades. Uh, and we were huddled down into the caves, being attacked as Americans. You've seen all the war movies, and you remind each other, we're doing this for a good cause. We are Americans, and we're fighting for our family. We're fighting for our land. I was born an American. And same with baptism. I was baptized. I am part of Christ's body. I have obligations, and I love my people, and I love his church. And I'm fighting for his kingdom. The instruments God has given us for the means of grace to grow are instruments in many ways that is the essence of them, what you have in everyday life. We rally the troops with words. I preach. You encourage the troops that you're one of us. You've been baptized. <laughs> you were born an American. There's a lot of parallels that way. Because God knows we're humans and things don't change when you're born again. You're still human. And so the moral connections there are Overlapping to a great extent. It's a good conscience is, is the appeasement of your conscience by the blood of Christ Jesus, as baptism points to. So to improve your baptism, not just the initiation, that's your first public confession, but the continuation, I already talked about that, that you are reminded when someone else is baptized, when the topic comes up, that you are a Christian, that you have obligations, you want to do the right thing, and you are different in this world and holy and set apart. But also through self-examination. Question 167 of the larger catechism talks about how to improve your baptism. How is your baptism to be, to be improved by us? And it's a long list, and I won't go through all of it. I'm not even going to read it here. I'm going to give you some parts of it. Romans 6 is the proof text they give. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? I do not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism to death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life there in Romans 6. Baptism, in other words, is a call to holy life. Don't continue in sin. Don't you know you've been baptized? Paul uses to draw the Christians back into the battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Don't continue in sin. Don't you know you've been baptized into Christ? Well, pastor, that's the spiritual reality. Yes, but doesn't baptism, that is the outward act of the washing of water, symbolize the inward act? So the two are tied still. Even if you're talking about the substance of it, the form of it, baptism by water, being, getting wet a little bit, 
symbolizes that, that act. And God gave it to you to reinforce the spiritual act, to point you to that spiritual reality. So you can still look at the physical, the outward, and go right back to the spiritual. That's the point. That's why you can use Romans 6. That's why the Puritans used Romans 6 as a proof text here, to improve your baptism. Because the two are tied closely together, but not such that, of course, that we believe in baptismal regeneration. You can be regenerated without, before, during, or after baptism. So whenever we witness a baptism, as I said as well, we can meditate upon the work of God and be committed to fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil as well, to think upon what God has given us. Whenever confronted with sin, contemplate your baptism. Did you ever think about that? That God has set you apart. That you are buried with Christ and raised again in newness of life so that you can continue on and do the right thing. Whenever you read about baptism, meditate upon your commitment that God has given you in your heart to walk in newness of life. Brothers and sisters, these are ways in which you can improve your baptism to be a better Christian, to be more sanctified and more like Christ Jesus. To meditate, to resist, and to further recommit your life in the sense of redoubling your efforts to do the right thing by God's grace and spirit. Baptism, brothers and sisters, is a symbol of the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration. It gives, it's given to believers Spirit of God is, and their children. And as such, we are called to improve our baptism by public repentance and confession and by a lifetime of examination and forward movement of obedience as best we can. Let us walk together as the baptized of the Lord and embrace our baptism with a life of repentance and faith. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We lift up our hearts before you, thanking the Lord that you look into our hearts and you've given us in your special providence baptism. It happened once, but that's all it takes, Lord, because it points to regeneration. Regeneration only happens once. We have the Spirit of God forever and ever. We thank you, God, that you give us this outward sign of an inward reality of our desire to love you, that we've been changed and our conscience has been purged by the blood of Christ, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord... We don't have the removal of the filth of the flesh, God, by baptism, but rather the answer of a good conscience towards God by faith in Christ alone. Amen and amen. Let us stand up and sing hymn 190, 190.
Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen. Uh, There are free books and pamphlets on the back table.